right. So I wanted to talk today about different categories of real estate clientele and specifically about clients looking to buy or sell depending on their price point and their overall experience. Now, we're going to break it down into three categories today as we bring our guest on. And it could be 10 categories. There's all sorts of different things. But for today's purposes, three categories, first-time home buyers, intermediate buyers and sellers, and then the luxury market. So as a real estate and mortgage professionals, it's really critical to understand all people and how to best service their needs, exceed their overall expectations. So our goal today is to obtain a better understanding of who our client is, what's important to them, how to best communicate and market to them. And at the end of the day, we're just trying to create a client for life and the best experience possible. So I'm going to start with the basic demographics of a first-time home buyer. So statistically, these are going to be buyers in early 30s, uh, late 20s, millennial marketplace. They need a lot of education as to what they can and can't do, and they have a thirst for education. They need help creating their budget, what their affordability is. Generally, they're going to keep that house in a five to seven year time frame. And from a price point, depending on your area, you're looking two fifty to five hundred thousand. Now, obviously, that's going to vary depending on where you're at. Then you have the intermediate client, and generally, they have a house to sell in order to buy, and they may need that equity to purchase the new home. And these are typically people in their late thirties to forties, Gen Xer kind of cusp. And they have some experience in home buying because they purchased a home before, but they really need an expert and they need help in the home selling process because they've never done it. Uh, their overall needs are different than first-time home buyers. They're more seasoned. They've had different life events, career events. They're just a little bit more life savvy in general. And for our purposes, we're going to say that's half a million to a million, 750,000 a million, right in that ballpark. And now we're going to get into the luxury market. So they may or may, these folks may or may not need to sell in order to buy. They may be looking at luxury second homes. They have a better understanding of the overall process, and they know what their needs are. They're an experienced client, either in real estate or in business in general, right? These are savvy people that have money, more mature age group, and they know what they want in a house. And more importantly, they know what they want in a real estate and mortgage professional. So with that being said, we had to really search to find the perfect person to come on the show today that's an expert in the luxury market. And I'm really happy to have him, Mr. DJ Tenhove. DJ, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Greg. Appreciate it. Good to see everybody. You have a fantastic radio voice. I do. Don't ever show the video. <laughs> <laughs> so DJ, would you mind telling us, tell us your story. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm DJ Tenhove. I run the Tenhove Realty Group, which is a real estate team based here in New Jersey. We are seven people strong. Um, we're based in Monmouth County, so the majority of our business we do is between Monmouth, Middlesex, Ocean, but then we have a very strong part up in northern New Jersey, which is our cousin, AJ, my cousin, AJ, that does the business up there for Bergen, Hudson, Essex, and Union County. So for all intents and purposes, we cover basically the eastern two-thirds or eastern half of New Jersey. Between seven people on the team, we've got four producing agents, mm. uh, 2021 metrics where I think 140 transactions for about $125 million produced. So wow. high price point, high volume. Mm -hmm. um, not the biggest team. We're, the way I like to describe us is basically a group of Navy SEALs. Sure. We've got four agents doing a lot of business and a lot of high-end business because they're very tactically trained in how to handle the customer, how to handle the information about real estate. Um, and then we're looking to grow as well, not just within New Jersey, but expanding out of the state um, over the next couple of years. But yeah, that's kind of where we're at this year's projections, even in a tighter market, we're growing. So we're shooting for about 200 units this year to help 200 families move and sell within the state of New Jersey. 
That's fantastic, DJ. What's your background? So I uh, grew up in Bergen County, so mm-hmm. I'm a Jersey boy, born and bred, and went to school in Manhattan for four years. Knew I did not want to go into finance, which was where everybody, all my buddies in college were, were going into investment banking. I was like, I'm never going to work a job that needs that many hours. Like, right. I just don't want to work that hard. <laughs> like, the worst <laughs> like you joke work less ever. now, right? Yeah. No, I work, and not that I work more than them, but I work, yeah. you know, 65 to 80 hour weeks, depending upon the week. Sure. So I went to college, graduated, got into advertising and marketing, kind of felt like that's where I wanted to land. Did that for a year and a half, hated working in an office, got into pharmaceutical sales, and then did that basically from 2003 all the way until 2016, which, yes, if you're paying attention, there's an overlap between when I started in real estate in Mm. 2008 and then finished in pharmaceutical sales in 2016. So for a good portion there, I was doing real estate part-time to grow the business. Mm -hmm. And then from 2016 until now, it's not just been full-time, but it's also been building the team out on top of it. So kind of a crazy background, but my original, my origin story, I guess, is that I grew up in a family-run construction business up in Bergen County. Okay. And that's helped me invaluably because of my background of information about building and standards and new techniques and being able to finesse that with higher-end clients. Understood. And you're an avid surfer? I am an avid surfer. Not as, not as much as I would like to or as I was pre-kids okay. or pre-real estate, but I'm getting back into that now. We bought a beach house in October down in our, uh, sort of in our blood in Long Beach Island. So right, great. Congratulations. Yes, I will be there. Today's what? Wednesday? I'm going to be there within uh, the next 48 hours. Surfing. All right. I'm, I'm sensing a road trip here, maybe for the next show. We can take it on the road. Let's go. <laughs> we, can, we can do the trip out in the water, right? Everything's waterproof. Yeah, yeah. So now you did a, you were on a luxury panel within the past couple of weeks up in northern New Jersey. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Keller Williams uh, Valley office, which is the office up in Woodcliffe Lake, put sure. together what they have as a summer soiree. And they invited myself, um, an agent, Michael Chapeau from, or Chapet, excuse me, I told him I wasn't going to pronounce his name wrong, from the KW Manhattan office, and then an agent from the Black Label team down in Philadelphia to okay. come and basically be a panel to answer some of these questions about like, what does the luxury customer look like? How did you get into that luxury business? And then answer some questions for the audience, which was largely real estate professionals or mortgage professionals about how their businesses run differently because they look, they service the luxury market. Sure. And I want to get into that in yep. more detail. I could, because you know, you come into this industry, you just don't start selling multi-million dollar houses. Everybody thinks difficult. they do. Yeah. You think you do, but you don't because no. there's a certain amount of grooming. There's a process associated into getting into that type of business. And luck. There you go. And luck. And what's the process? Like, how do you decide you're going to be a luxury real estate agent and what's your process to move forward on it? Well, my, my aspirations, I think like most real estate agents was to get into servicing that clientele as early as I possibly could. I mean, the way that I decided to become a real estate agent itself is pretty funny and not all that different from a lot of people who are probably listening here. I was working in a full-time sales job realized that I probably didn't have the longevity in that career that they weren't going to keep me until retirement because companies just don't do that anymore. And I needed to find another way out to provide for myself in the future. Realized I had an ability to go get my real estate license part-time and do that in the off hours and weekends. And I was watching Million Dollar Listing in the beginning of that show when like the guys in California were doing it. I'm watching these guys. Hopefully they're not watching here. And I was like, if these guys can do this, I can crush it. Right. And that was my inspiration. Got my real estate license and then the rest is history. Um, But I got into the business after servicing high-end, affluent, very knowledgeable physicians Mm -hmm. in in the pharmaceutical. Like I knew I could talk the talk with that group of people and I knew I knew how to appeal to those people as well. And then I just wanted to get into real estate, not just service luxury clientele, but service everybody. Mm -hmm. But I started providing a level of information and a look and a brand that fit 
the luxury client, mm-hmm. but still serviced everybody down to the $75,000 empty piece of land the same way so that everybody felt like they were a luxury client when they were working with our business sure. and you just attract more luxury clients when you're providing that level of service. Yeah. And it's funny because I can see from the pharmaceutical end of it, how that would have a lot of value because you're speaking to high end doctors all the time and you have to be smart. Yeah. Like you really have to know what you're talking about and then segueing that over into dealing with a similar customer or client on the luxury side, same thing. You have to be smart. You have to be purposeful in what you're doing. I think it's just any sales job, and it applies more in the affluent or higher end markets, no matter what you're selling, you have to listen. And you have to show that you're really not just a salesperson, but you're really listening to what the customer has to say and what they need and finding a solution to get them what they're looking for. They're not looking for a salesperson. They're looking for a consultant. And I think that's the reason why, especially in the luxury space, Real estate agents are always going to exist. Real estate professionals will always exist in the luxury space, even if we get you know, commoditized within the entry-level space or we're replaced by internet systems or whatever it is that's going to come in and try to disrupt our market. Sure. At the higher-end version of anything, that personal level of service is always required and wanted by that customer. A, because they either just don't want to be bothered with it, they want you to take care of it, or they want to know they have somebody they can scream at at the end of the day right. when something doesn't work out the way that it's supposed to. You can't go yell at an 800 number. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that's a great perspective on it. Now, how do you get from a systematic standpoint, how do you get there? Like, what's your system look like? You have a team. What's everything look like? Um, I know I say this too many times, but she really does deserve all the credit. So Nikki is our system. My wife, Nikki, got into the business, also was in um, device sales, and then left her business to join the real estate business before I went full-time. So in 2012, 2013, she came on. And really where she was instrumental was helping us systemize and procedure, make procedures to make this scalable. Because that's the hardest part about any business, sure. right? Is if you're great at what you do, how do you take what you're providing and then truly scale it so that the customer experience is the same for every person right. and you can service more people without the quality going down? So what Nikki was instrumental in is really coming up with a way and a system and a process for everything that we did so that we can then add layers on top of it. So simply put, the way the business runs right now, I am the rainmaker or the CEO of the entire business. So I oversee everything that happens, but I'm really still in a sales role as well. So I'll handle all the listings, sell side business within the central part of our, our team here in Monmouth, Middlesex and Ocean County. Cree and Sabrina are our buyer agents. So they specifically focus on just servicing buyers and renters and driving listings into the listing side of the business. Mm-hmm. AJ is a hybrid agent. So he does both listings and, and purchases up in Northern New Jersey. And he'll probably move into a listing role if that's what he desires to do and then hire a buyer agent underneath him. And then we have a coordinator, Lydia, who is not my assistant, but is a glorified version of that. She is my right hand. She helps me keep everything on track all day long. John's our creative guy. Mm-hmm. So he's in charge of all of our YouTube, social media, all of our video content. So we're kind of unique as a small team to have a full-time marketing professional sure. instead of farming that out. But that has a lot to do with keeping us on brand, on message, and making sure what we're producing is consistent for the customer. And then we have a back-end transaction coordinator, which is someone who's virtual that's actually managing our transactions and running sort of the paperwork through the attorneys and the mortgage professionals and the appraisers and all that to get at the closing. So really, four producing agents two support staff, a marketing professional, um, and that gets us to nearly a 200 units a year. That's fantastic. So what is your, so how do you prospect? Like where does that, you're the rainmaker on it, so you yep. make all that happen. So I am, I am, I would love to be better at lead gen. I think everybody would love to be better at lead gen and everybody knows we need to do more of it. 
we were we were really lucky in the beginning. So for the first 10 years of doing business, we attracted business just purely by attracting it and by talking to people. There wasn't really specific lead generation done around cold calling or anything like that. Now, as we get bigger and bigger, we have to be able to systematize that and make sure that everybody's producing lead gen at certain hours of the day in order to produce enough leads to keep the machine rolling. But we, we live in two very tight spaces. We don't do online advertising. We don't do magazines. We don't do billboards. Like We don't advertise anywhere. We have grown via word of mouth. Mm-hmm. 80 plus percent of our business is from past client referrals or sphere of influence referrals. Okay. So when we make our phone calls, that's who we live with. So how do you stay in front of those folks? Two ways. So the phone calls and the text messages have to happen once a quarter, twice a year, at least you have to be in touch with those people voice to voice. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario, if you can't talk to them four times a year, it's texting. Just make sure you're, you know what's going on in their life. We, we like to tell, if you don't know, we like to tell our agents and people that work with us, if you don't know their favorite team, if you right. don't know their favorite restaurant, they're going to pick another real estate professional potentially because you're not that close to them. Sure. And when the time comes that they need somebody top of mind, you may not be that person if you're not that deeply in relationship with that customer. So phone calls and text messages at least two to four times a year. And then the dripping on them through all the various means of social media and email is really important for us as well. And that's really where we've dived deep over the last 18 to 24 months to make sure that they're following us on YouTube. They're following us on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, now a little bit more on Twitter so that they're seeing us even when we're not intentionally reaching out to them. So we're staying top of mind. And this is where I think the systematic approach to it's so important because you look at it from that analytical view. So everyone wants to stay in front of people and social media, YouTube, follow my channel. I mean, Nick and I do it all the time. How do you do that? How do you get them to subscribe? Well, it's a work in progress. I think it's something we wish we were better at as well. If you look at the number of followers we have on Instagram, we'd still wish that number were tenfold, but we're paying less attention to the number of people following us as we are the level of engagement we're having with people. So sure. if we have we have 50 people com- 50 people that are liking a post, but we've got 10 comments, I know we're good. Mm. I'd rather have that than have 4,000 people liking a post that we do on Instagram, but nobody sends a comment. Because when I look at other people in the space and I see that, I know they bought their followers. I know they're fake people. Yeah. They're bots. Yeah. And that's not actually going to result in business coming from it. You look like you're a big deal, but it's not actually producing business. Yeah. And you know what? That's a nugget. And I hope everyone got that. This isn't, it's not quantity. This is a quality game. It's 100%. how it's not the wide net. It's the, the and that's small not net for that everybody, deep. right? That, I mean, the same thing goes within real estate. You could be a team that is built on quantity. You could just be, I'm a volume person, right? right. I'm going to do as many deals as I can. If stuff falls through the cracks, if we don't do a great job, it is what it is because the numbers are going to make up for it. Mm-hmm. That's not how we built the business. That's not how I can sleep at night. For me, it's about lower quantity, extremely high quality, and then that's scalable. That I can actually take from. 30 units to 60 units to 100 units to 200 units. That's great. It's super methodical. Yeah. I love it. Well, not everybody's built for that. Some people want to go faster. For us, it's just it's what works for us. And then from the the way that we put this out on social media too, it's a matter of making sure we're producing content that the customer wants to see. So we have a YouTube spreadsheet. We have a, um, a Google sheet that we have set up with about a hundred videos at any time that we're looking to shoot over the next year. Mm. But the one we shoot next week is going to be based around what is the customer actually looking at right now? Some of right. it's done through looking at Google trends and YouTube trends and search rankings. And then also what am I hearing out there in the marketplace from our agents or from my own customers? Mm-hmm. So we did a live session last week on YouTube and LinkedIn and Facebook, which was about mortgage rates hitting 6.3%, the market crashing is that's what's going to actually happen. And some local New Jersey news at the same time, so that it's really current 
sure. for the audience to make sure that they're constantly coming back and they're sharing it with their friends. And you prioritize that. Right? Absolutely. So we've got that list of, of topics. Obviously, we want to shoot the stuff that looks better outside when the weather's better. So John and I had all these videos to shoot about towns and beaches in the wintertime. We're like, we're not going to do that because it's just, it's going to look dreary and cold and dark in Jersey. So let's wait till we have summertime. But right now it's about making sure the content we're shooting even more prioritized than that stuff is current to what the massive change in the marketplace is about. Because that's what people are searching for. And in order to reach more people, you got to be hitting what they're looking for. Yeah, no, no question about it, especially with the market, yeah. market conditions. You know, we try to do that on a regular basis as well, because it's really critical. It's critical to affordability. It's critical. It's content that people want to see today. Absolutely. It's what people are searching for, and they're right. going to absorb as much of that as they can. Like you said, in the millennial space, they're looking at eight different sources of information before they're making a decision to do anything. Right. You've got to make sure you're in front of those people as many times and as an vast array of places as you possibly can for them to go, wow, this person, I saw them shared on social media. I saw them on my LinkedIn. Now I saw their YouTube. They're popping up and they're retargeting me on Facebook. Like this is the guy I want to use. Right. That's great, DJ. How do you feel about joining country clubs or political events or kind of that face-to-face hobnobbing type of thing? Funny because it actually came up at the summer soiree as well. I, I have so little time in my day of free time. Right that I really try not to join those types of places unless it's organic to something that I really want to do. Sure. So I thought about joining a country club a few years ago and I just, I don't have enough time to play golf and I'm also a super competitive guy. So if I <laughs> you can't- You don't need that stress in no, your world. No, <laughs> I don't. Like when I play golf and I shoot a hundred, I just, I want to throw the entire bag in the, in the uh, pond because unless I'm playing three or four days a week and I can play competitively like a low candy handicap, yeah. there's no reason for me to do it. Cause it's just going to make my <laughs> life harder. Um, so I decided against that. Then we joined a, a private social club in Red Bank and we just found we didn't have the time to actually go there. It was a great place to meet people, but if you're not there, what's the point? Sure. So what, what we've actually done and we suggest to all the people that join our team about trying to find ways to network that are organic to you is figure out something that you love. Try to do more of that around other people. So if you're into painting, go to painting clubs. If, if, you, if you're into surfing, go surf more. Sure. But the other part of it that's a little bit more strategic is figure out who is your end result customer that you're trying to, to reach and find mm-hmm. out who the person between you and them are that is a connector. Who's the person in the middle that's already servicing that clientele that's a friend of yours or a vendor of yours that is that personality and they're doing something that you already want to do. So for example, if you're into painting and there's somebody who runs a Pinot's palette and they're servicing the type of clients that you want to do, go and spend more time at Pinot's palette or with that person Mm. so that you can be in front of their customers who are the ones you want to reach. For me, one of those ways is with our tailor. So you know, they're buddies of mine. They're friends of mine. I'm already there most of the time because I like buying clothes from them. Yep. But Michael Duru Taylor's in, in Shrewsbury, I spend time there intentionally. Now I guess the secret's out. Um, and I'm going to have 80 other real estate agents that are sitting in his tailor shop. But I know that they actually service the type of clientele that I want to service more. And they're a connector. They love building other people's businesses. Sure. And I'm already there anyway. Right. No, that's great. And just so you know, uh, I was referred to your tailor by you indirectly. You gave the number to Rachel, my wife. <laughs> yes. Spencer Freeman was on the show talking about your tailor. Oh, he's <laughs> getting lots of free press. He, no, and he deserves it too. Uh, but yeah, that's fantastic. And the, and the nugget out of that is the connector yeah. piece. And again, it's that methodical approach to who's the connector and how am I going to work within that sphere? 
everything has to be strategic. Otherwise, yeah. you're just throwing crap at a wall and hoping yeah. some of it's going to stick. And when you're when you're busy, especially if this is a side hustle that you're trying to get off the ground, you have to be strategic with it so you're not wasting time. Otherwise, sure. you're going to start something, do it for three months. It's not going to work. Start something else for three months. Like you, you need to give something six months of doing it before you actually see enough results to say whether it worked or didn't work. But you need to at least have an intentional approach from the very beginning of why something might work. Sure. No, makes makes perfect sense. That's great. What level of service do your customers expect from you? Probably always more than what you're what you're giving them, but mm -hmm. we strive to constantly be asking those customers what could we be doing differently and how can we build products around that. So there's a I've mentioned it a couple times in social media, but there's a um, a book called The Pumpkin Plan. I think that's what it's called, and it talks about how rather than trying to grow millions of pumpkins, if your goal is to try to build one world famous award winning pumpkin. What you need to do is you need to kill off all the other pumpkins that are along that vine in order to make all the nutrients and all the food go to the one the mm -hmm. one pumpkin to make it bigger. And it's applicable to business too, right? If you want to grow one customer segment and be really good at it, you have to you have to not do business with the stuff that's not revenue generating or the type of client that you want to do business with. But along that line, the book talks about figure out who your perfect customer was that you loved doing business with that you did already. Mm -hmm. And if you could clone them and only work with those clients be happy, right? Sure. We'll go to that customer and say, what sucked about what we did? Not just us, but the industry. What mm -hmm. was the worst parts about this entire transaction? And then take a step back and do this to a couple of different people, but take a step back and build a product to solve those. Right. And when you can fix when you can fix those problems for people, go back and say, look, this is what we built. Test it, try it, tell me if this works any better. Constantly tweak and retweak until you end up with a product that services that customer and solved all those problems because then they'll tell all of their friends mm. about how amazing that product was and you'll end up with more of that type of customer over and over again. Yeah. So for us, that's what we try to do. We try to figure out where were the soft points in the transaction, what could we be doing differently, whether that's bringing a childcare sitter along for showings on properties because the parents are distracted while they're showing houses or sure. they're coming to see pride. Little things like that, that if we can add value-added services to make it a easier or better transaction along the way for the customer, that helps us grow word of mouth. That's fantastic. And it takes a tremendous amount of confidence to be able to have that conversation, high trust relationship that you have with your clients to be able to ask those types of direct questions and get the direct feedback that you're looking for. But I think that's necessary to any yeah. business, right? It's so simple to just go, hey, here's my Google link and here's my Zillow link. Go send me a review. Has anybody actually seen a bad review on Zillow? No, I haven't. Every baited. single person's a five-star review because like you said, it's baited. Yeah. So how valuable are those results really to the customer? And we know the customer actually values reviews that are online. Look at TripAdvisor. That's the reason why somebody books one hotel over another. But the word of mouth that happens when someone's saying, hey, I'm thinking about selling and they're at a party with their friends and then you're mentioned to them, sure. that's that's worth way more than the online review. And the way that happens is by solving that customer's problems. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. So what's, what's expected? So what are your clients expecting from you? I think that clients are expecting, the bare minimum right now on the buy side of the transaction is you're going to open doors for them, mm -hmm. right? The transactions changed dramatically with the advent of Zillow and Trulia and Realtor.com and all these online sources now where the customer's finding the property before they find the real estate agent. Sure. So their value in a buyer's agent for a lot of purposes has diminished. And they're looking at you as someone who's going to take them around and open up doors for them and then eventually write an offer for them. That, I think, is the bare minimum on the buy side. And unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot more people wanting to go directly to listing agents because they don't value what the buyer agent brings to the table. And that's, I think, a big gap. As a great mm -hmm. buyer's agent, there's so much more value you can provide to that customer because the reason why the Zillows and Trulias and Realtor.coms of the world can't 
dominate a local space is they don't know the local information. They don't know why one neighborhood is better than another neighborhood or not better necessarily, but what the ins and outs of a different neighborhood are. The details behind it, demographics. That's still the stuff that you need somebody boots on the ground who understands those local markets to be able to give that information to you. And to find things that are off market, to know the the pressure points during the transaction, when to push, when not to push. On the listing side of the business, I think sellers' expectations are as high as they've ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, during the downturn, or I should say during the peak with COVID, with property selling as fast as they could, you would think that more people would not be using real estate agents because they could just sell them behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But they still desired to have somebody handle the transaction for them to make sure that they weren't leaving money on the table because- sure. Quite honestly, trying to pick what your price was going to be during the COVID boom was like blindfolding yourself and throwing darts at the wall. But as an agent who operates in that market space to know, all right, well, last three properties that are under contract and two of them are off market, I know what they went for or roughly because I'm in contact with those other agents and we do so much business with them. Now I can help guide my buyer or my seller on where they should be on price, how far over asking price, what their terms should be. Um, And then- from the listing side of the business too, just with the the marketing approaches, I think it has now become a given that you have professional real estate photography, which why anybody doesn't do that at this point, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Probably should have the real estate license taken away if they're not doing that. But in the higher end space, they're looking for outside the box. Right, Luxury clients are looking for not just put your sign in the yard, put it on the MLS and pray for somebody to come along and sell it for you on the other side of the transaction. They're looking for you to reach customers in a way that other real estate agents can't reach them. And, and how do you do you that? How do you do it? That's why the investment into social media yeah. and YouTube has has been what it has been for us. I mean, we're we're trying to. I don't know that we're quite at the level yet, but we're doing cutting edge stuff that you're seeing the guys like Ryan Serhant and Frederick Eklund and the Josh Altmans of the world, what sure. they're doing with not just, hey, this is DJ and we're going to walk you through this property, but let's make dynamic, entertaining shorts on Instagram that really are emotional to the customer mm. and draw people's interest in so that they're going to share and share and share and it spreads across the entire country. Yeah. And now people are contacting you about this stellar piece of property in New Jersey that they never would have known about. It's going and working with publishers to make sure that they're writing articles on our unique properties like this place, 160 Hartshorn, we have on now. Mm. It's a 17-acre parcel on the Navasink River. was written up in NJ.com. We've got people calling us from California saying, I saw this article because my friend from Jersey shared it with me. I had no idea this existed. So what is your real estate agent doing to get you out there to people that are not already looking in that area? That's fantastic, DJ. You need your own show. You look like a Ralph Lauren model. <laughs> Tell me not, Nick. Look at him. As long as it pays and I can stay married, I'll do it. Well, you got you to promise to have me on your show when you do have one. When I have one, you're absolutely <laughs> welcome. You will be guest number one. Well, thank you, DJ. Yeah. So we're just going to go to a quick break, and we're going to pick back up. Uh, Greg Wareham, DJ Tenhove, Your Mortgage Process. We'll be right back at you. Thanks, Greg. So I'd like to thank today's sponsor, Michael Duru Clothiers, conveniently located on Broad Street in Shrewsbury, New Jersey. Michael Duru makes suits made to measure, tailoring, weddings, really a third generation family business with old world know-how with a clear eye on tomorrow's style. Michael Duru does an exceptional job and it can be reached at 732-741-1999 or you can reach him on the web at michaelduru, that's D-U-R-U.com. So welcome back to Your Mortgage Process. I'm, of course, Greg Wareham. We have our guest today, Mr. DJ Tenhove. Uh, DJ, yeah, have a question for you. Okay. So we just spoke a minute ago about the things that are expected. Yep. What things are unacceptable to the client? 
That's a great question. So unacceptable, the client is not responding to them. I would say not even within 24 hours. Realistically, it's responding to them in the same business day. Because text message is the primary way that customers are, are or that I think all of us are communicating these days, if you don't respond to the customer almost immediately, yeah, it's the, pro, the, the process slows down, their expectation of you is already there and you're not meeting it. So I think that's another reason why having a team of people for them to have multiple people to reach out to, to know that their needs are always going to be top of mind is really important. That's one of the things we do really well as a team is make sure that the customer knows they can reach out to any of the seven people on the team mm. and always make sure we're paying attention to them. So I would say that's definitely a unacceptable is not responding to the customer in an extremely timely process. And maybe more important than that one is talking poorly about the client or the property. right? And that seems like a given, like who would ever do that? But nowadays, because there are microphones and cameras everywhere on these properties, you'd be shocked how many times people talk about stuff that they think they can say in closed proximity or no one's watching, but the customer's listening and the customer's watching. And it comes back to bite you in the butt. Thankfully, it hasn't happened to me because we really try to make a point of always talking positive about our clients and about the property. But Sometimes you find customers or other agents pulling you into that space right. and you're like winking at them like. Yeah, hard to believe people even go down that path. I mean, that's just, there are people who live in that space, right? There are people who are just negative Nancy's and are always going to talk bad about things or use that airtime. Instead of talking about what they do really well or great about their product, they're going to talk bad about somebody else. Sure, and that never, that never pans out. That never works well for you. You just look bad at the same time. So I wanted to backtrack a little bit because you just mentioned that someone or one of the seven people on your team, the customer is comfortable yep. reaching out to. So from the very beginning of the process, you're introducing the whole team yes. right out of the gates. Yeah. So at my listing presentation, they know everybody on the team and who they are and what their jobs are. Right. That's important to me because otherwise scaling what I do is almost impossible because the customer is going to want just you. Right. They hi they hire DJ to sell the house. They want DJ for everything that you can possibly touch throughout the entire transaction. It's hugely inefficient. And there's also things that I'm not as good at as Lydia. There's things right. that I'm not as good at as Nikki or definitely not as good at as John. So it's important to make sure that they understand we have built this team out for the express purposes of handling each of your needs with the person who's got the best personality fit and is their strong suit of what they do. Mm -hmm. But it's important to get that out of the way in the beginning so that they understand that they have these people at their re as their beck and call or as a resource throughout the course of the transaction. You know, and it takes a lot of time to get to that comfort level. I haven't been through it myself. It's very difficult to relinquish control, right? Because they want you all the time. They want me all the time. But at the end of the day, it becomes a non-scalable model. And it's Absolutely. hard to give up that control. Yeah. You know, until you've really built the trust with your team That's and train them. Absolutely the case. And I'm I am a huge control freak from right. so for me and Nikki to have been in a place where we can um, relinquish some of that control to people on the team is a testament to if you trust the process and if you have the right processes in place and the right people in place, sure. they will make you more successful. They will make the team more successful than whatever you can do as a single person. That comes back to two things which is making sure that everybody on the team understands what the objective is from the very beginning mm -hmm. as a business. There's another book, I forget what it's called, but they talk about commander's intent in the book. It's right. a Navy SEAL-driven book. And what they talk about is in, in the Army or in the military, there's a commander's intent for the entire mission, right? But then there's all these different platoons and different levels of leadership in between that general and the person who boots on the ground going and raiding that building. 
the general can't be there overseeing and micromanaging everything that happens during that raid when they have to go off script because they saw something that wasn't actually what they planned for. Sure. But as long as the soldier knows at the end of the day what was the mission supposed to accomplish and they can accomplish that goal by going off script and making that happen, then you get to the right result. So for us, it's a matter of everybody on the team knows the objective is that every customer we work with has a five-star review at the end of it and refers a client to us. You can ad lib sure. whatever you need to do in order to fix a problem to make that happen as long as the end result is achieved. So, all right, so they're coming to work for your team. Here's our mission statement. Bingo. Right? Make sure the customer ends up happy. Make sure they get a successful result at the end of the day and that they want to refer more clients back into the business. Yeah, and again, again, it comes back to being methodical in the approach of it. You're not winging anything, right? Absolutely. People know exactly what the, like the military, I think that's a great example. You run it like a, a kind military, let's kind say. Military. <laughs> it's the nice military. Team. The nice military. Yeah, and then it also comes back to trusting the people who are in your business to be yeah. able to service the clientele that you're working with. I mean, for me, when I first brought on buyer's agents to service our multi-million dollar customers, I had that apprehension was like, how am I going to take this person who's been in the business for eight months and hand them a $2 million buyer and have them not fall flat on their face for their own benefit, but also sure. for the customer's benefit. And thankfully my coach and I built out a program that we now call the challenge, but used to call the pressure test. We've changed the name for obvious reasons because <laughs> nobody wants to go through it when you call it the pressure test, but it is a mock buyer situation that once you're two thirds of the way through our training program as a buyer's agent, you have to pass this mock buyer situation that is everything from an inbound phone call of a cold lead all the way through to closing on a transaction and handing the prop, handing the contract off to an attorney to start attorney review. But what that is, is not just a mock buyer situation on a computer. It is me calling them as Joe Smith from Milwaukee that's moving to New Jersey, they have to handle that call as if I'm a nobody. And then they're gonna work with me as a buyer every step of the way, including entering me into our CRM, making sure they send properties, closing on which properties we're gonna go see, setting them up, showing me houses, closing me to make an offer on a property, writing the contract, negotiating it, and handing it off to attorney review. That's fantastic. It's now, terrifying. Did, did, you put, well, did you put that training program yes. together? Yep. That's great. That's a, that's another nugget in there. Again, it shows the kind of the methodical nature of everything you're doing. I know I know I've used that used that term a lot today, yeah. but at the end of the day, that's a big takeaway that I'm having. There's just a very everything's thought out we try. to the detail. And that that program, something we've shared with Keller Keller Williams agents across the country, but something we're also going to be packaging into a product that will be something that's actually saleable to new agents. Okay. The training process that we have over the first 12 weeks of anybody joining the business, whether you're a tenured agent or a brand new agent, we pride ourselves on extremely high levels of technical knowledge. Sure. Anybody can teach you how to write a contract. Anybody can teach you how to go show a house, but we're gonna we're teaching our agents super high level information about how septic systems operate, about titles, about encroachments. Mm. We're gonna package that product sometime in the next year. That's great stuff, DJ. So when you're dealing with a consumer, you're dealing with a client. There's different approaches to selling. There's direct, there's schmoozy, there's in between. Do you find yourself having to change how you're presenting depending on who the client is? I do, and I think it's hysterical too because if you knew me in my, I would say pre, pre-20s, I was not a salesperson. It was, mm -hmm. it was like anathema to me. Like I just had wanted nothing to do with it. It was not in my DNA. I was not a schmoozer. My roommate in college, Derek, I was a pitcher in college. He was the catcher for the baseball team. I remember him being in, the class was called Physics for Poets. <laughs> <laughs> I would have gotten an F in that class. Which I thought saying. was like the easiest science <laughs> class I could possibly take in order to hit the requirement at, right. uh, at college. And I remember him going up at the end of the, the session 
and talking to the the professor about why his grade should be higher, and he actually got it done. Okay, and I remember being so pissed that he actually negotiated a higher grade. And all the credit to him. I mean, he's and he's an amazing salesperson, an amazing entrepreneur still to this day. But I remember at that point in my life how much I hated sales. Like it just didn't wasn't in my DNA. And then you look at where I am now, and it's ridiculous. Right. So I give a lot of that credit to the company that I worked for in pharmaceuticals on training me to understand the sales process, but then also finding my personality sure. of how to do it. I am not an overly salesperson. If you guys know me and you've ever worked with me as a customer, I am not a hard sale person. I'm not super schmoozy. I am just me. Mm. And I try to make people feel as comfortable as they possibly can while being super duper transparent right it's trying to give people remove that veil of bs that exists in this industry and just let people see the way that everything truly operates yeah. and be transparent with them the whole way through i think the main part main part about selling is just grabbing their attention very quickly have something in the first 30 seconds of meeting somebody mm. that attracts them to you whether that's some commonality you have with them if it's something really interesting about your personality or something about them that in the first 30 seconds you've hooked them and now they're along for the ride the rest of the way yeah and then understanding personality type type so if you guys haven't done disc profiling and you're in sales you absolutely need to do it i think it's now through tony robbins but I'm a high D, by the way. How about you, you are. Yeah. I am a high C. Okay. And I don't even have a secondary. Like, it's just C, 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 C. But if I get enough information, finally, I do flip over to a D as my, as my backup. But okay. that's, you talk about methodical, now it all makes sense. Like, the C is the detail-oriented engineering type. Yeah. So you're a high D. You just want your information, and you want it now, and okay. you want to move on to the next thing. But understanding those different personality styles as a salesperson allows you to not only understand where you need to push, where you need to pull but the right type of questions to ask. A D needs to know what. Yeah, the facts. A C wants to know how. Right. Pitch yourself in the way that those personality styles are going to respond to you. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you start pitching Greg Wareham as if he's an I personality, which is extroverted and super friendly, and you start treating him like that. I'm kind of friendly. You are, but you're gone. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're gone. Right. You so walked true. away from me so before true. I ever finished that conversation. Yeah, I go blank on the whole thing. Yeah, she's like, okay, take it too long. But you bring up a good point is understanding you know, what the type of person that you're dealing with, what questions you're going to ask that person, and then just as importantly, how you're going to ask it. Sure. Because it matters. Absolutely. It matters all the way down to where you sit in at the table with the customer. You wouldn't think this stuff matters, but like when, when I'm sitting down at a listing appointment, everything from the time I walk through that door until I walk out of that house, how it happens and when it happens is matter. It's an orchestrated performance. So when you walk in the door, everybody wants to walk you around the house and show you how magnificent whatever it is that they have in the house is. You're going to be there for two hours admiring the screws from the sheetrock that right. everyone else has They're in stainless their house. steel. Exactly. <laughs> so for me, it's okay. I look, give me five minutes to walk through the house on my own so I can see it from a buyer's perspective. Sure. And they go to another part of the house. I get to experience the house as if I'm a buyer and I get to take all that information in. The whole time I'm doing that, I'm taking information in about what they did on the house that's unique to it. Then I can then come back to them at the table and say, I noticed this and I noticed that. And they're like, wow, you paid attention to that. You noticed yeah. the details and I didn't have to tell you it. And then even when you sit at the table with them, where do you sit? Do you have the two of them on the other side of the table from you? That's like a war zone. You've right. got two people against one. You sit in the table where you're in between both of them so mm -hmm. that you are the mediating party. It changes people's behavioral style at mm. the table as well. Don't ever turn down a drink from somebody either. And I'm not talking alcohol, but like you go into someone's house for a negotiation or to meet with them and they offer you something, you take it no matter what, even if you don't drink it, because it's a kindness now that has relaxed them 
sure. for, to be able to, to negotiate with you. So coming back to team and expectations, you know, I'm a big proponent of you can only manage what you can measure. Right. There has to be metrics in place to be able to control, to have QC with everything. So how do you measure the success of your team? How do you measure the success of the experience with the client? So the success of the experience with the client really comes down to, at the end of the day, did they give us a review and did they refer more clients into Mm. the business? So that's a quantifiable metric that we can see. And we're asking for those reviews all the way through the process. We're asking for referrals all the way through the process. At every point where there's a positive interaction, whether it's, okay, we found the house and we're making an offer. Okay, who else do you know that's looking to do real estate or do your friends looking to buy or sell? And then at every happy point throughout the transaction, we're doing that as well. Mm. Um, As far as other quantifiable metrics to track success of people in the business, we go Everyone on the team has their own business plan. So right. in October, November, we think about, we sit down and we have a business planning session where everybody sits down and goes, okay, how much money do I want to make this year? And then we backtrack off of that. How many deals would you need to do and how many people would you need to talk to in order to make those numbers mm-hmm. happen? We then break that up into monthly goals and weekly goals. And we're tracking that on a weekly basis. And we have a call on Monday and a call on Friday as a team every week. The Friday call we go through, did we hit our number as a week that we needed to as a team? Mm. And then the agents are talking to their coaches or to me about, did I hit my metrics for the week on how many deals I needed to put in the contract, how many closings I need to have? And if you're off target, we reassess that goal mid-year to make sure that we're not overshooting it because the market shifted. Right. But yeah, it's it, you can't just go, hey, I'm just going to sell real estate this year and I hope I make a lot of money. Right, I'm going to wing it. Yeah, I mean, market's I, fantastic. Anyone can sell real estate. I guess that that is a plan to some degree, but it's kind of a plan to fail, right? Because you yeah. don't really have any trackable metrics to to yeah. follow through the course of the year. Yeah, you got to be able to manage yeah. manage the metrics on everything. And you know, I'm going to go back to originally when you came in the business in 2008, and then where we're at right now. So the market that we're coming into right now is obviously shifting. Sure. And it's going to be different than what we've seen in the past. In a lot of ways, just, I've been doing this for 24 years. And I remember in 2008, when you had come into to the industry, DJ, you saw some things yeah. that were unique about that marketplace. And now you have the experience to pull back from, to say, going into this market, we're going to see something similar. Absolutely. How do you update or change your plan based on the market? Or do you? So we try to update our business plan Definitely once a year. That's a given. But do we update it every six months? Really only if the market shifted dramatically. So right now, yeah, we're sitting down and we're thinking about are the goals we have achievable in this marketplace because it's either contracting or it's expanding. Um, But to go back to what you said, I got my license in 2008. And if anybody remembers, the market crashed in the summer of 2007. And we hit the financial crisis in 2009. So everybody thinks that I got my license in the worst time in history by mistake. I didn't. I did that intentionally because I had another career at that point. And it was an opportunity for me to get education and training in a market where I already had my primary income. So anything I learned or made on the side was just a bonus. And figured by the time the market came back around, I'd have that knowledge and have myself up and running that I could do it full time. Thankfully, that part played out. But you're right. There's a lot of things I learned from that 08 to 2012 downturn that I'm going to use as information and valuable resources this time around. Seller's concessions, creative financing. Sure. Creative financing is coming back in a big way as a seller. If you're not thinking about buy-down points to help attract a buyer to your house as we head into this marketplace where mortgages are 6 or potentially 7 or 8% and trying to find a way to make sure you stand out, you need to pick a real estate agent who understands creative financing. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more, obviously, about the financing end of it. You know, understanding what the jumbo marketplace looks like, understanding what 
the fixed rate options are, yeah. the adjustable rate options. To your point, the buy down, what's your break even on it? How long are you going to be in the house? And all those details that go into it. Yep. You know, I do a lot of different classes on that type of information to real estate agents. Not everybody gets it. Most don't. Yeah, they, they, they don't. It's not, it's, the, a, it's not the bread and butter, right? It's not the things you have to do to, to do a normal transaction. And, you know, when we're going into this market where skill is the name of the game, right? You have to have a high level of skill. Not that you have to be an expert in everything, but you have to be very well balanced yeah. in being able, being able to speak to anything. Absolutely. And I think that's a big takeaway for what we're about to see, too. You, know, you and I were talking about this offline before we went on air, is these types of contracting markets are great for some people and terrible for others. If you've been winging it or you really don't have a plan and you don't have procedures in place and you don't have enough momentum, this could be the marketplace that puts you out of business. Sure. But for people who have a real professional business and systems and procedures in place and they've been doing really well, this is a, way, a place for you to gain market share now. Yeah. You're, the, the market center is gonna weed itself out. You're gonna have, we have the most number of real estate agents in history across the country and in New Jersey as well. I'm sure the same thing with mortgage same professionals. Same mortgage, yep. Look and see how much of them disappear over the next two to three years. This is kind of the fun part. If you've been doing a long time and you have a plan, and, yep. and I use fun loosely, but people people that are doing the onesies and twosies yeah. transaction with no real plan, they're all going to leave the industry and people like us are going to be able to capture market share. Yeah. And that really goes for anybody who's got a plan as to how they're going to capture market share and look at it as an opportunity. Yeah, I mean- Someone's someone's win is a someone else's loss, right? right? So I'm actually very excited about this market slowing down to a certain degree. And mm -hmm. I was that guy in the front waving the flag at the beginning. Uh, I would say probably as of like September of 2020, I, everyone's like, you must be so thrilled. The market's on fire and you're crushing it and deals are falling in your lap. And I was like, look, things are good. I'm not complaining. But the buy side of the business is struggling right now because you got to write 10 offers for somebody before you can get a deal accepted. Sure. Even when you're savvy and you know all the things to push the right buttons, it's just a matter of it being super competitive. That's not a healthy market for anybody. Right. I would rather go back to January of 2020 all over again. We came out of the fall of 2019 in a slowing market. And then the Fed shifted their interest rates, and we had the best January and February of 2020 as we had in a decade. Mm. And then COVID hit, and I thought I was out of business. Right. Everybody got that part wrong. But I'll take a neutral market over a swinging seller's market or buyer's market either day. It's just much, much healthier yeah. for everybody. That's and I'm excited for our buyer's agents. They're yeah. going to be in a marketplace now where they're going to be the ones controlling the power. Right. Me as the listing agent, I'm going to be begging them for offers to come in where they've been in the opposite situation for the sure. last two years. You know, I've always been a firm believer in recessions, whether or not it's in our industry, whether or not it's in the country, they're a sale for the prepared. The great way to put it. Right. Because that's the time to capitalize. And, you know, people get into that funk, for lack of a better way to put it. Oh, everything's falling apart. We right. got all these issues. Look, at the end of the day, this is a go forward industry. You have to be a go forward person and you have to be able to capitalize on the opportunity that's going to be in front of you. There's always motivated buyers and there's always motivated sellers. It's right. a matter of finding them and weeding out all the other stuff. Right. And that's the part that's going to become really important as a real estate professional, mortgage professional is you're going to have a lot of people talking about doing business over the next two or three years, but won't jump over the fence. You need to figure out by systems and procedures and qualifying those people correctly, who are the people I can really focus on that are going to do business in the next 30 days? Yeah, no question about it. So when you look at the luxury space, why are some agents apprehensive to get into it? I think people are apprehensive because they have imposter syndrome. I think they're worried that they can't actually play the part. And because of that, they never even show up. That's great. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a nugget in and of itself. So in that imposter syndrome, 
is that a result of not having the education or the training as to how you're going to go after the business? Or you just kind of like walking in and winging it? Yes and yes. I mean, imposter syndrome to me is you lack the confidence. You lack the swagger. I I teach a class on preparing for your listing appointment. And part of that is you need to have swagger. However you need to accomplish that swagger is up to you. Whether you're a person who's detail-oriented, you need to have all the technical knowledge. Or if you're a person who needs to prepare your your script or whatever it's going to be. Whatever you need to do to walk into that appointment and feel like I'm the guy, that's what you need to do. So if you don't have that, you're going to feel like an imposter no matter what. It's just how you get to that point that's different to you and you need to understand yourself what makes you get to that point where you feel like I own this room. I'm the right guy and if yeah. they don't hire me, I'm they're they're making a mistake. Does image matter? I th- I believe it does. I know there's plenty of real estate agents. I was on another luxury panel with um a few ladies from here in Monmouth County as part of a resources real estate get together and they actually said they don't agree that that's the case. They said it doesn't matter what type of car you drive, doesn't matter what you dress, doesn't matter where you hang out. And I think there's truth to that depending upon who you are. Mm-hmm. For me, it's what makes me feel confident in that space and it's things that I like. I like my car, I like my clothes, I'm not a watch guy, I'm a bourbon guy. Like Those are my things that I attach to that I like that help me um, connect with other people and help me access that space and that's just who I am. So for me, yeah, I do think that's important and we do hold people on our team accountable to that as well. You're showing up to show a one and a half million dollar house in yoga pants and flip flops, yeah. no dice, Right, you're out. Yeah, I think it does matter. You know, from my perspective, I think it does matter. You know, you're if you're going to work in a particular space, you know, how you look, how you sound. And I'm not going to define image just as, you know, how you look visually, right. how you sound, how prepared you are, you know, your voice inflictions, all those things that go into it. I think it can really separate people in a luxury space versus the other space in the industry. Absolutely. And I think more than, like you said, it mattering that you are dressed in expensive clothing. Yeah. It's more a matter of whatever your image is that you're projecting, yeah. stand out. Just look different. Right. If the entire marketplace and the entire world is going to a place where everything fits like sweatpants, don't wear sweatpants. <laughs> don't wear a suit that, that's right. stretchy. Wear a three-piece suit. Wear a button-up suit. Wear a, wear a tie. Wear something that's going to stand out that people go, wow, this is different. Right. Even if, even if it's not necessarily the way the customer dresses or, or it's not for the right space, like I'll show places on Long Beach Island in a suit. Mm-hmm. people in Long Beach Island show properties in flip-flops and shorts and they ride bikes between the properties. It's just who I am. Right. I'm not going to change that depending upon the place that I work. And it makes me stand out. It's what I'm known. It's what people know me for. Sure. Yeah. You're always put together. You Thank are. You. Uh, how do you get a $10 million listing? Um, <laughs> 14 years of work. <laughs> uh, not easily is the answer to that question. So the story behind that listing is very interesting. Um, I hope it's actually a $13 million. Yeah, that's true. It was 13 million. It was 12.99 if we're going to be super accurate, but, um, that listing came to us, believe it or not, um, through two different ways of marketing. One was word of mouth. The other one was, um, a, a handwritten note that we sent out. So we had been selling quite a few properties along the river during the course of the last two years. That's the Navisink river high-end properties. And we sent out a handwritten note and another note to anybody who had a property along the river or was in the close vicinity of that, that was in the $3 million and above range. And 
Oddly enough, that letter was received by the homeowner at the same time that the daughter of those homeowners were talking to them about hiring us, that they should be thinking outside the box because they had another licensed real estate agent they were friends with, very social people. They know every big real estate agent across the county. They could have picked from anybody. Mm -hmm. But they were looking for somebody to think outside the box and bring a unique dynamic to this property, which we knew was going to be a challenge. It's a whale. It's a $13 million property in a market that, although the homes are worth that, we hadn't seen a property trade for more than 6 to $7 million in a decade. So they needed somebody who was going to bring something different to the table. And oddly enough, the the um, the daughter, who's actually now on our team, um, had been following our social media for about six months. We had no idea. She had, wasn't interacting with any of our posts or anything. So it was kind of okay. like behind the scenes. She had been talking to her parents about, hey, you might want to think about interviewing this person because he looks like he's going to be able to reach the New York audience. And then the same time that our letter respond or uh, was received at the house was that culmination point. Mm -hmm. So I got the interview, showed up for it, did what I do. Um, thankfully, had an opportunity to list that house. And then the person who bought it, came from where we didn't intend it to come from. Where'd they we come would have from? expected that person to come from New York. That's who all of our marketing was geared toward, and they came from a mile down the road. <laughs> you never know. Remember when I said there's a little bit of luck to this? Yeah. There's luck to everything you do, but I think that mm -hmm. luck, what do they say? 90% of luck is just showing up, just being right. there in the right place at the right time, and you need to create your luck by being in more places. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. As we kind of start to land the plane on this, what's one piece of advice you would give to someone who's looking to enter into the luxury market? First, understanding which clientele are you looking to service. Just because you say luxury doesn't necessarily mean they're all the same, right? right. Are you looking for sellers? Are you looking for buyers? Are you looking for beach properties? Are you looking for residential? Are you looking for farmland and equestrian? There's there's so many little sub-markets therein. What is it that you either like or know really well? And then who's the person that connects you to those people, like we were talking about yeah. with a connector? And then beyond that, it's just figuring out what is is it that's unique to you? What's your unique value proposition that you can bring to a customer that's going to differentiate you from the other 45,000 licensed real estate agents in New Jersey sure. that you're competing with for that space? Right. And go after marketing and getting in front of as many of those people as you can because it's, it's a lot like a snowball rolling downhill. Once you get over that apex and you've done a couple of deals, because you're doing open houses on those properties, you're picking up more multi-million dollar buyers. Those multi-million sure. dollar buyers are selling properties that might refer to other multi-million dollar sellers. So it starts to gather its momentum, but you have to be able to push that snowball up over the hill to get even started. Sure. What's the one piece of advice you would give to someone that you never do in going after the luxury business? Wow. Dead air on radio is bad, right? <laughs> What's the one thing that I don't do that I would what recommend? What do you think? So someone, can, so, so someone comes in, they want to be in the luxury space, and you take them to the side and you go, listen, Sally or Bob, we're working with luxury clients. Don't ever do X. Oh, don't ever do. I thought you were saying, what's the one thing that I don't do that I should do? Because that was going to be more, Ooh, that's another good more cold calls probably. <laughs> um, but no, that's not a strong suit of mine. So what's the one thing you don't ever do? Yeah. Don't ever badmouth your client. Yeah. And don't ever talk bad about the other real estate agent. You're working together towards a mutual goal. You'd be surprised how small this circle really is. Sure. And word gets around real fast. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'll throw another one in. Don't ever screw the client. That's, that is the most important thing. That's the number one rule in everything. We are fiduciaries to our customers. There is so much backroom dealing that happens in this business, and there are agents that do things that they shouldn't be doing. It always comes back to bite you, no matter how good, no matter how successful you are at some point. They're going to, the chickens are going to come to roost. How much do you love what you do? 
I love what I do because it changes every single day. Do I want to be out there showing houses from eight o'clock in the morning till five o'clock in the afternoon for the rest of my life? Probably not, but I enjoy the business. And the further I get into this business where I can work on the business instead of in the business, sure. that, that gets me more and more excited. But I don't think I'll ever step away from actually transacting in the space because the unpredictability of this and the, the problem solving that needs to happen split second. Yeah. That's the part that actually gets my adrenaline rush. Yeah. We're very like-minded with that. You know, one of the reasons I built bigger teams and I've had smaller teams at the end of the day, I like talking to the consumer and I think it's you therapeutic. Have to, right? You know, I like to understand what's going on. I like people, yeah. you know, and I like to understand their story and why it's important to them and kind of working through that process. And I think you have to, because at some point when you remove yourself from a customer service space like this, yeah. and you're no longer talking, touching to the customer or talking to the customer, no matter how good the information your team is giving to you, you become disconnected from I it and you can't solve the problems. Got to keep one foot in it. One foot in the ghetto, right? That's one foot in the ghetto, DJ. That's Love right. It. <laughs> so DJ, Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. It was great. Uh, when everyone watches this on video, again, you're going to see how DJ always looks like a million bucks, <laughs> looks like a Ralph Lauren model, said it twice. But uh, thanks so much for being here today. We really appreciate you. I appreciate you having me here. I mean, this is actually really fun. You get to challenge me on some questions that I really should know the answers to and get to open me up to a new audience. So thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, DJ. We look forward to catching up with you soon. And thank you, everybody out there, for listening today. Again, this is Greg Wareham with DJ Tenho, and we'll look forward to catching up with you next week. Bye, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process, hosted by Greg Wareham, produced by Greg Wareham and Nick Pavise at The Social Rift, and executively produced by The Social Rift. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to catching up with you next week.